And welcome to episode 49 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, your guide to observing the Mars 2020 opposition. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. Say hi, Shane. Bonjour. <laughs> we are two amateur astronomers and that means we do astronomy just for the fun of it. And this podcast is one of the ways we get to share our love for astronomy with anybody who wants to learn more about the night sky. And this time we're going to talk about the great Mars opposition of 2020. So Shane, what are you doing on October 12th? Well, the obvious, I'm eating Gonna turkey. Complaining about it's, all the clouds. <laughs> it's Canadian Thanksgiving. We're eating turkey that day. Mm. <laughs> and it's the great Mars opposition. Yeah. For this and year. that too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It better not be cloudy. Yes. Better not be cloudy. Better not be. Um, basically this is going to be, and leading up to it, like it's not just the 12th, but really from, yeah. from now we're just about a month uh, before the, the 12th of, of October and, and the month after um, this really is the time to, uh, to take a look at Mars. In fact, I was out this morning. I, I was, I got up as, as you know, I get up at, at 3am and, and go out and see if the conditions are good enough to observe. And they just weren't quite good enough. There was some cloud actually, but Mars is now so bright um, that it was beaming right through the thin uh, cloud that was up there. It was like the only thing I could see in that part of the sky. Um, and it was super visible. In fact, at first I was like, I'm going to grab my gear and bring it out. But then I realized it was just coming through the clouds mm. and uh, it is that bright. Wow. Well, it, it's incredible. Like it, yeah, like it's just a, a beacon in the sky. And what I love about these good oppositions is you know, just how orangey it is too, even to the mm -hmm. naked eye. Like you, you just can't mistake it. Yeah. So how often do we get these, these oppositions in general? They're about every two years. Um, yeah. I believe it's 26 months ish yeah, to be like exact, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah, every two years, uh, Mars becomes, uh, or it gets much closer. It's not, it's not, um, oh, what's the right word here? Um, it's an elliptical orbit. Uh, so, it, you know, the distance between us and them, or it. <laughs> uh, little no, foreshadowing elliptical. There. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's, let's, let's carry on with the script. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So, so not all these oppositions are, are created equal. There's, I think what you're trying to say is there's basically some oppositions where Mars is closer to us and there's some oppositions where it's farther away. And, uh, and then as well, there's oppositions where it's further south because the ecliptic uh, runs through some of the southerly constellations like uh, Scorpius and Sagittarius and, and it's very low on our northern horizon. And then there's times like this one where it's really nice and high. So there's several factors there. So sometimes it can be nice and high and be far away and sometimes it can be nice and close but too low down. And when it's low down, the atmosphere uh, impacts it and, and really impedes the view. Um, and when it's far away, that, that the planet is very small. But this is one of those ones where it's both very high in our nighttime sky. Boy, like even this morning, I, I was at a little bit later and it was uh, at five o'clock and it was still up like maybe 50 degrees in the nighttime sky or something like that. So really nice and high and it's really close. And I was looking and the next really good opposition for us in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, is not until 2034. So we got to we got more than a dozen years to wait for the next one. Unfortunately, that will be this good. Now, even though it comes around every 26 months, uh, the next one that would be this good is some time away. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing that you and I have talked about on a few of our previous podcasts is the last Mars opposition 
was almost like it really wasn't worth observing because a dust storm had uh, taken over the entire planet of Mars. So there was no surface detail to see. It was just this orange circle. Yeah. Um, right now, there's no dust storm happening. Now that could change. It, it's an active planet in that yep. regard. So, you know, the other part of this is like, you got to get out there and observe it as much as you can, because tomorrow a dust storm could start to kick up. And then a week later, you Nothing. won't be able to see any detail on the planet. So, um, you know, the, the next two months, not, I'm going to be looking at Mars every clear night that I can yeah. because of all of these factors. It's just things are lining up right now for it to be a, a, an outstanding Mars season. Just after the pandemic hit and, and with this Mars opposition uh, coming up, a couple of my friends were giving uh, from, from Ontario, they were giving a presentation and, and they took it on to Zoom. It wasn't supposed to be on Zoom, so I attended it. And they had actually made this big plan for the 2018 opposition to finally um, go down and, and they had a bit of a sponsor um, in, in, a, in another mutual friend or from another mutual friend who arranged for time on the Lowell Observatory uh, Clark telescope and, and they went down and I feel really bad for them. They went all the way down there and they were dust stormed out. They, they actually had like three nights booked where they were the, the only people there at the telescope. Wow. And, uh, and it was clear on earth, but not clear on Mars. And there was like one night where they could just barely see some of the, some of the features now, like not even as good as the other night when we rode and, and we had some poor seeing conditions. They weren't even able to see it that well. I felt pretty bad. Uh, they had like kind of arranged and uh, and spent a lot of money for that. But uh, and you know that that just can be the way it is. But the whole experience, they had a lot of interesting stories just just from the whole experience and being there uh, on Mars Hill, where Lowell made his his sort of famous or perhaps uh, infamous <laughs> observations. Um, is, is pretty cool. So Shane, what is an opposition? Exactly. We're saying uh, Mars is going to be an opposition on October 12th. So what is an opposition? So whenever we talk about planets, we often circle or, or focus in on opposition. Um, so with, within astronomy, uh, opposition is when two astronomical objects are said to be in opposition when they are on opposite sides of the celestial sphere um, as observed from a given body. So that would be Earth for us. Um, a planet is said to be in opposition or at opposition when it is opposite to the sun in our skies. So this means it rises at sunset and sets at sunrise. So it's visible for the entire evening. Yeah. And kind of leading up to that and, and you, you made a bit of a joke, but it's true that I've sort of become a bit of a nocturnal creature because um, before opposition, it's highest in the morning sky. And then after opposition, it's highest in the evening sky. And the, the one thing that I found is that the morning sky can be a little bit more stable and a little bit clearer than forecast. Even this morning, uh, wasn't supposed to be clear when I first got up at about uh, three. It was completely cloudy. Um, I was chatting some astronomy with a friend of mine on the West Coast. He was also clouded out and smoked out. And then um, when I went outside at five, uh, it had almost cleared off, but we had some unexpected rain overnight and, and the skies uh, were very, very humid. There's a lot of moisture around. So uh, I didn't set up, but uh, once we get past the 12th, I'll pretty much just be observing uh, in the evening sky. Uh, unfortunately, because I, I think those morning skies really are. I think you should, you should at least get up once and do a morning session. I think. 
one of these days I'll shock you and actually do that. But, uh, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> uh, I, I won't make any commitments at this point in time. No, good stuff. Um, so what captivates humans on the pale blue dot, which, which our Earth uh, sort of was, was named by Carl Sagan? Um, so what captivates humans so much uh, on our planet about the little orange ember up there? Well, I, I think there's a, a couple things. Like one is it's, it's a challenging observation uh, because it's, it's a long ways away and it's not a very large planet. Um, but it gives you just enough detail that it can, well, in the past, it certainly spurred a lot of uh, imagination around what people could be observing. But I think the other thing that intrigues people a lot about Mars is there's a, there's a lot of similarities to Earth. You know, it has polar caps. Um, it has deserts that we're aware of, uh, you know, a, a large volcano. Um, there, there's a lot of similarities to our home planet. And you can tease some of that stuff out, even with the small telescope. Like my little 76 millimeter the other night when we were out, um, the seeing was terrible, but I was still able to, you know, detect kind of the white attributes of the polar cap, as well as some of the darker features on the surface, um, like some of the, the desert, uh, desert regions. Like I think I was getting glimpses of Certus Major, I think. Oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so certainly, you know, that, that stuff makes it a very interesting uh, object to observe. And then like we mentioned, like it only comes around uh, every two years when it's uh, a good target for us to look at. Um, so some of it is supply and demand. I think that makes it a, a very intriguing object to look at. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like what you're saying, I think just, just the idea that uh, it does have these polar caps in the areas that were once thought to be seas and, and continents, like you were, you were mentioned, Certus Major, um, which kind of is like this Africa-shaped uh, continent-like feature, um, really kind of makes us feel like we're looking at a planet that is uh, maybe much more similar to Earth uh, than, than what it actually is. So these, these ideas were really solidified in the 1800s by an Italian astronomer called Schiaparelli, or named Schiaparelli. And his impression was that these channels um, appeared like a spider web across the surface. And uh, then it was the American Percival Lowell who, who we kind of referenced there a few minutes ago. Uh, and he erected an observatory in Arizona, uh, just outside of Flagstaff. Uh, uh, and he called it Mars Hill. Uh, and this really fostered the, the idea and, and perhaps created a, a now widely held myth of uh, Martian held or Martian built canals uh, that were channeling water away from the melting polar caps to save the parched uh, inhabitants of the deserts. Like it, it really makes a, a nice narrative. Um, now, <laughs> what, what I think happened was um, just prior to this in 1877, a guy named Asif Hall, who was, who was an American observer at the U.S. Naval Observatory, former, former teacher, um, he discovered these two moons in orbit around Mars. And uh, boy, they were really small and pretty difficult. Once they did the math, um, they were captured asteroids. And it, there, I think there was really a feeling that um, sort of like skies unlimited thinking, uh, you know, anything is possible mm -hmm. to observe. So that if you're, you are observing um, these things on Mars that are right at the limits of, of what's possible for a human to perceive through a telescope, that there actually is... Uh, a lot of merit to them. Now, Hall 
was truly an, an astounding uh, visual observer. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the others were just uh, misinterpreting um, or misseeing uh, what was at the very, very edges of, of their, uh, the, the perception of their eye, unfortunately. And that, that's what they were seeing as the canals. Yeah, and, and to observe Mars's moons is incredible. Like, not only do you need to be a, an outstanding visual observer, but you need the right conditions as well as the right instrument. Um, those are not, I've never seen them. I don't know if you've ever visually seen them. No, I, I never have. I, I know a couple people that have been able to, and you, you need some very specialized equipment and an occulting bar, a large telescope, excellent conditions. Mars needs to be close and high up like it is this time. Um, yeah, you need you need lots of stuff uh, to be lining up uh, in in order to to make those. And and Hall was observing in a bad spot in uh, where, where the U.S. Naval Observatory uh, was at the time. Anyway, I'm not sure if it's still there. Uh, is is called like the foggy bottom uh, or something like that. You know, like it's in mm-hmm. it's in this low area that's prone prone to fog. Um, and anyway, so so he just sort of waited out and was was observing during during the best times with some of the best equipment. So that, that's really what, what came down to. Um, so yeah, it, it ended up being one of those things where there was a lot of sort of public misconceptions about it. And then that kind of got a little bit, uh, a little bit carried away. But, you know, since the seventies, we've had spacecraft touchdown, I think the, the Viking lander touchdown, um, you know, sort of, sort of before, before the time where I would be watching anything much of anything. <laughs> Um, in the 70s, uh, and uh, there was a couple of those landers. And then we've seen lots of rovers recently, yeah, eh? Yeah, and I'm just reading here about Mars 3 um, from okay. the Soviet Mars program in 1971. Um, it looks like it looks like Mars 3 maybe was a some kind of probe that orbited Mars and then Mars two was a lander that crashed. Oh no, Mars three lander became the first spacecraft to attain soft landing on Mars. Oh. December 2nd, 1971. Wow. Although it failed 110 seconds after landing, having <laughs> transmitted only a gray image with no details. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And we've had lots of rovers. Like I remember in the late nineties, we had some sort of remote control car sized rovers that I think were still tethered to the uh, original spacecraft. And then, uh, and then we sort of moved up to the like opportunity class rovers that were sort of ATV sized. And then I think uh, eventually like the uh, curiosity and now the perseverance rover, which is on its way in. And it's uh, about the size of a small car, like 10 feet long, nine feet wide, seven feet tall. It's about the size of a of a little car, really. Yeah, yeah, and and it's amazing uh, what Curiosity has sent back to Earth for research and data, like just phenomenal photographs. And one of my favorites is, um, oh gee, it's uh, like just kind of capturing the horizon and a sunset on Mars. You know, it just feels very natural. You know, very Earth-like. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have a little bit of a connection here with with the the landers on on Mars because uh, the uh, the NASA team was was trained by by someone from uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, and how to how to do that. And and from time to time in the past, we've actually had some of the the NASA team come up here and give presentations, which has been really cool because uh, sort of Saskatchewan was uh, one of the leading 
places for aerial and satellite um, geological explore, exploration, where they were one of the first places to take uh, satellite and aerial images of, of the geology of terrain in order to figure out uh, best mining and forestry practices and stuff like that. Uh, and then when NASA was looking to actually put landers on Mars, um, they, they needed that expertise. And so they, they came here to be trained on where to put the, uh, a lot of these Mars landers down. And, and uh, I kind of heard that and was a little bit skeptical about it. And then, you know, we, we had Jim Grace come up and I, I got to have some meals with him and spend some time. It was pretty phenomenal, you know, to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the geology of Mars sort of, as a, as a bit of a segue into to what we were just saying, um, there's no plate tectonics, but there is some volcanism there. In fact, the largest volcano in the solar system, Olympus Mons, is there. And it's so large, it's sort of hard to get your head around. And like you and I have both been to uh, some of the large volcanoes on the Hawaiian Islands, but Olympus, Mars, Olympus Mons on Mars is so huge that if you landed on it, um, you would barely be able to perceive the grade like it's so gradual and like that's how large it is, even though it's, I forget how high, it's miles and miles well, high it's, though. It's, it's 21 kilometers 21 tall, kilometers which tall. is 13.6 miles. So, and, and just to put some context here, so, you know, we're all familiar with Mount Everest, uh, tallest mountain on earth. Olympus Mons is approximately two and a half times Everest's height above sea level. Mm. It's incredible. Like if that was on earth, the peak of Olympus Mons would be, I think, extending into space. Like I, yeah. I, I think that would poke through our atmosphere. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. Now Mars itself, you know, one of the things is, and I, you know, people often say, well, like, would you go to Mars? Like when I'm doing a talk or something, or I know when, when Jim Grace was here doing his presentations, that was one of those things. And he was like an astounding no as well, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, and one of the reasons why is that, you know, Mars is uh, much smaller. Like it, it, when you look at it, yeah, it's round and it has some atmosphere and it has these polar caps and these uh, desert and continent-like regions and large surface features, which are very reminiscent uh, of the Earth. But that's kind of where it stops. Like it's, it's actually much closer in size to our moon than the Earth itself. I mean, it would be amazing if it was the size of the Earth. Um, it would be amazing what, what we could see there, but it, it's just not. Just yeah, yeah, it, 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 it is small and it is a long ways away, which, you know, makes it challenging. Yeah. So a little bit more on the, the history there. Like you can see these polar caps, which we've talked a little bit of, and they have some water ice in them and some carbon dioxide ice and other subsurface ice. And these were first observed by Hugens, uh, Christian Hugens back in 1672 and then later confirmed by Moraldi in uh, 1719. Uh, there's also a lot of caves and valleys that have been discovered by like, uh, you know, the Viking and Mariner missions and such. And they were carved out. They now think, and this is sort of like recent stuff I was, I was reading um, just over the summer, where uh, they think there was these large uh, glacial caps. Not, not like a not like a global snowball or anything, but there was some large uh, glacial features. And that these uh, melted at one point and then the, the melt uh, happened very quickly and it sort of forged out uh, features like the Mariner Valley. I don't know if you read any of that stuff this summer when they, they released a few papers on this. They had some really neat shots showing like Mars and then like these glacials and then like how it kind of carved it out and then those features kind of filled back in with some ice and water and that sort of thing. It was really cool. 
Hmm. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. There's also very little magnetism on Mars. And this, this is definitely a problem for anybody that, that has thoughts of going and wandering around on the surface. Because um, that means that the solar wind and, and the weak gravity, because it only has, um, you know, uh, about 60% of Earth's gravity, uh, the, the solar wind is pushing the, uh, the atmosphere out into space. Yeah, yeah. So it, <laughs> that's it, a problem. It'll it would be a very challenging place to uh, to have a good life, I guess. <laughs> I yeah, I I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's uh, it's definitely a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Like the the whole concept of you know people going to Mars, and you know maybe at some point you know the talk about. Like, like actually thriving or living on Mars is, is incredible. You know, yeah. the fact that some of those plans, you know, that, we, you know, we may actually see a person on Mars in our lifetime, I think is so exciting. That would be exciting. I'd be very concerned for that individual. <laughs> well, they're, they're not coming back, I think would be one of the key things, right? They're, they're yeah. going there to do work and, and be a pioneer of sorts, but um, we're probably not seeing them back on earth. I know. And I think, I think like I would struggle with that, like sending somebody off to their imminent doom. Um, I kind of, I, I just have a little bit of a problem with that sort of working in scientific research. I, I do have a little bit of a problem with, with just, I, I think ethics would have trouble with that one. Like, you know, like, you know, so that person's going to, I don't know. I, yeah, I think a lot of things would have to line up for that to get, uh, for that to get approved. I also think like sending somebody there and having them come back, yeah, I don't, I don't see that as an insurmountable challenge, but I think like if we did send somebody and then, you know, eventually they get into trouble, I think there would be a pretty big rallying cry to kind of go in and save them or, or whatever. Cause you know, that, that really is sort of a, a very bad situation, you know, nobody wants to see. Right. So I, I think they got to figure out a way to get them back if, if we're going to send them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what can, what can we actually see? So what can you see? Um, unaided eye or naked eye. Um, without like any optics. Yeah. Without any optics at all. Well, um, just, it looks like an orange star to me. Yeah. Um, a bright, a very bright orange star during this time of uh, the year or like this opposition. Yep. Um, but that's probably about it. I think, unless there's other things I'm not aware of. Well, there's just, and that's all you can actually see of the planet itself. But this was something, you know, Mars was something that people were watching um, for many thousands of years. And the one thing that they noticed is that there's a period of time where it does a bit of a, a loop-de-loop, basically. And uh, nobody understood why until about, uh, about 1600. So there was uh, a lot of theories. And of course, we had the Copernican theory come along in, in the 1500s uh, when Nicholas uh, Copernicus put that out. But uh, still, even with the Copernican theory, nobody could really explain why uh, Mars did this loop-to-loop. -loop, or basically what it does is it does this backwards or what's called a retrograde motion. So, and you can see this even without a telescope. And what you'll actually see, and uh, the person who who made the best observations of this uh, and, and was Tigo Brahe. He was observing before the telescope was used in the nighttime sky. He's observing in the, in the mid to late 1500s. And uh, he made all these observations of Mars and this uh, backwards action against 
these star fields. So what happens is you see Mars going along um, at this time, and then there, there's a point. I forget when that point is exactly. I don't know that it necessarily lines up with the opposition date. Um, but, but around now is when you'll start to see this. You'll see Mars will actually stop. So it's, it's trucking along. The stars are kind of going past Mars as, as it's going in its orbit. And then um, it sort of appears to become stationary. And then it changes direction for a period of uh, a few days or weeks or whatever it is. And then, uh, you know, kind of starts to reverse direction again and then continue along its path um, against the, the background stars. And nobody could really figure out this, uh, but Tycho Brahe had uh, an apprentice or maybe that's the, the wrong way to put it, but was Johannes Kepler. And he created a mathematical model, which we rely on today for these uh, orbital dynamics. And he figured out the business of retrograde motion or retrograde action. And basically, and look, I'm no math major on this, but the best way I've seen it described, it's like two cars traveling. And imagine you're on a multi-lane highway and you're in the rear car and you're approaching a car on that highway. So you actually will see that car traveling along, maybe in the distance as you're approaching it. And just like you, the trees are kind of coming up to that car and going by on, on sort of one side. And that's what you would expect. Now, something that most people may, may not have quite noticed, um, especially if you're the driver, you should keep your eyes on the road. But as you, as you approach that car and then pull out to pass, those trees will appear to move in the opposite direction, just as you're going by the car. It's just a function of perspective, you know, where you are and the motion of that vehicle uh, appears to actually go backwards because you're passing it, right? So you're going to see that car sort of moving into a position behind you. And it's that motion which appears uh, to make the car move backwards in relation to to those trees like sort of in the, in the far background and then once you're past it will begin to uh, very quickly move uh, along in the same direction you're going again and, and the trees and everything will, will continue to uh, sort of move past as, as you would expect so that's basically what's happening with Mars as we overtake it we're on the inside orbit so we're moving along and we see Mars in the in the sort of distant sky because it's outside of our orbit and it's passing stars. And then as we come up and we're sort of uh, lining up just right with it, we'll see it stop. We'll see it move backwards as we pass it. And then it stops and changes direction again and continues on, uh, on that regular motion. So you actually can see this. And this is one of the things uh, that they say you can see with the, with the unaided eye. And that's how it was originally observed. That's very interesting. I was yeah. not aware of that. Yeah, it's, it's, you, you kind of would have to go out and plot it night to night to night. But yeah. I've never really done that, but I've heard of other people that are really into, say, like some people might be more into the math of all this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard of people like kind of running the numbers and then going out and watching it and kind of getting some enjoyment out of that. Uh, that's a little bit beyond my, my mathematical skill level, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I just like to look at pretty things. <laughs> yeah, me too. But you might be able to see this a little bit better through binoculars. And I think with binoculars, mm, yeah, you really yeah. you might be able to see a bit of a disc, especially this time. Uh, I think before might be a stretch that you see a disc. I think you could see a disc this time with Mars, and then um, you would be able to see it kind of go by the stars, uh, especially like week to week. You're going to notice a change in relation yeah. to the background stars. And if you kind of kind of look for the Mars uh, retrograde orbit you, you'd be able to kind of track it in amongst those stars and that that could be kind of cool 
Yeah. Well, and, and binoculars would be great for that observation just because of the wider field. Like you would, you would require those background stars there in order to, you know, uh, achieve this observation over a period of a, a week or well, whatever time frame it is. Yeah. Now with a telescope, that's a whole different ballgame. Yes. So what, what, yeah, what can you see with the scope, Shane? Well, I think the most apparent things people will, will, will notice through a telescope will be uh, the polar caps, if they're mm-hmm. visible. Uh, because again, with that orange planet and then the white cap, there's such a contrast there that they just, they jump out. Even, even the other night in really bad seeing, I was able to see like there was white on the northern polar yep. cap and it was, you couldn't miss it. Uh, and yeah. then the other things uh, is you'll see kind of a contrast on the surface between darker and uh, I don't like lighter colored or brighter uh, features um, mm-hmm. all across the disk of the planet. Now, what you see there varies uh, greatly on the seeing conditions as well as your aperture and maybe even some of the filters that you yeah. use. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's really amazing to see um, these polar caps uh, through the small telescopes. Even through my 60 millimeter this year, I've been watching the south polar cap shrink, mm-hmm. uh, especially as the, uh, as the planet Mars um, goes into its, its late spring and summer months here and it becomes more tilted towards the Earth. The south polar cap, um, I'd missed a week or so. And then when I went back out and, and I guess it had rotated around enough that um, at that point, the, the south polar cap appears way out in the desert because the south pole is tilted so far towards the Earth. And you can actually see right around the pole, which um, is really amazing. And I, I think we're just having a good opposition and it's just a good time uh, in the Mars seasons to be able to see this. I was really blown away. I, I just thought that I'm, you know, I must be uh, making some sort of observational error at first and then kind of went and, and looked at the orbit and the angle and the inclination and all that. And I was blown away at how far that south polar cap was uh, sort of onto the disk. Like you could see an appreciable amount of, of desert uh, beyond the cap, um, you know, in, in what I thought would be the polar direction. But it's just because the, the pole is tilted so far towards us. Uh, and then in the north, Originally, I could see a bit of the, the North Polar cap, like itself, but now almost like what you were saying is um, there's so much snow and ice and everything that's formed up in the, in the North Pole during, during the winter now that, um, you know, you're really just seeing like a huge area that, uh, that has sort of been covered in frost and snows and ice and, and all this other kind of material. Uh, and that's built up. So originally when this, this opposition started here a few months ago and I was looking, the, the North Pole, when you could see it, um, really just looked like a, like a large kind of polar shaped feature. But now that whole area is, is covered in, uh, in like, a bit of a, like a bit of a snow cap, really, more, than, more so than just like a, like a round circular polar cap, like, like you might traditionally think of one. Um, and my observations, again, like I was kind of questioning them and then uh, I was talking to some other observers online, better observers than, than myself, like Richard Schmoody. And, uh, and he and I had a good conversation about like how big that cap was getting in. And he had made um, some more accurate drawings than, than what I had made, but, but definitely my observations were concurring with his. And it just goes to show like the experience of, of taking a look at some of these things. 
Yeah, and and Mars, like it, it, it's very dynamic in terms of its seasons and and how the uh, polar caps in particular evolve uh, or change during that time, uh, which is another reason to observe Mars many times over the next couple of months, as many times as you can, because you'll see some of this stuff change uh, over the coming weeks. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was Christian Hugens who first saw these uh, Sirtis Major uh, feature, like the dark African-shaped continent uh, in his sketches. And he was using an aerial telescope. So he was using, I think it was like a two or two and a half inch telescope, but I, I forget how long it was, like 28 feet long or some sort oh, of uh, ridiculous number. So I was thinking, no back chair for him, Shane. Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> Um, but sort of speaking of gear, you know, the higher quality equipment um, and sort of almost irrespective of size is, is what will help reveal some of these fine uh, details. In fact, probably about the, it seems like about the ideal instrument for observing Mars seems to be like about a really good eight inch or so uh, reflector. Really yeah, seems yeah, I... happy size. Yeah, I used to have an eight inch reflector um, and I've had some outstanding observations of Mars with that. Um, but you know what, I, I struggle a little bit sometimes with having too much aperture with the planets and in that some of the brightness washes out some of the subtle yeah. features of the disc. So, you know, I'm a little bit on the other side of the spectrum where I, I would almost prefer uh, what probably most people would consider uh, an instrument that's just too small. Um, yeah, like uh, like my seventy six millimeter, the last Mars opposition, I was using a, a Tasco seven TE five. So that's a telescope from the sixties. It was a sixty millimeter telescope with a really long focal length. Yeah, um, but because there's less light coming through the telescope, um, I kind of believe you can see some subtle features that yep. probably are washed out by larger apertures. Now, larger apertures do show some other features better, you know, probably, yep. you know, Sirtis Major is probably more defined and, and uh, some other, other things will pop out a lot better for you. Yeah. These are all still pretty small instruments. Like if we're talking You're about right. a yeah. uh, three inch refractor, I'm using a four inch refractor these days. Uh, you know, I, before the podcast, I was talking about my six inch, six inch uh, Max Sudoff, but you know, apertures between three and at eight inches or so these, these are, Definitely the small telescopes in, uh, you know, which are really the ones, the main ones in the hands of the, of the amateur astronomers. And I, I think they provide really the best views that you're going to get visually uh, through, through a telescope. But you've been collecting some pretty fancy, uh, or maybe fancy is the actual opposite word. You've been collecting some very basic but expensive eyepieces for, for Mars, uh, some of those monocentrics. And have you been able to use those on, on the planet yet? No, I, I actually haven't. I was hoping the other night when we were out, I, I brought them, but the seeing yep. was so bad, it, it didn't, you know, it yeah, worth bringing them out. I did bring my uh, XO and I meant to use it because the, the better um, monocentrics and very minimal eyepieces and the higher quality ones will actually uh, give you a better view in those poor seeing conditions. Yeah. Like, well, I, I've even noticed that in like good conditions. Mm -hmm. um, if I put the super mono in over say my Leica zoom, yeah, the, the conditions go from say like a three out of five to like maybe a three and a half out of five. It seems yep. uh, it just gets better. So, um, cause one thing I was, I was observing here um, a couple weeks ago was 
through my XO, I could see this this sort of uh, the white area of the North Polar region, and uh, I could see like this blue line. But I thought it was like remnant chromatic aberration in the refractor. But oddly, I could only see it in the in the five point one XO, and I couldn't see it in any other multi element like larger field eye pieces. And then when I was I was chatting with uh, with, with you know really a, an amazing planetary observer, Richard, he was saying that uh, that that was the the atmosphere and had a had an image that he had drawn and sketched and sent to me. And I was like, yeah, for sure, hundred percent. Like that's what I was. That's what I was observing. But again, like you're really getting down to some pretty fine observations with, uh, with some pretty expensive little, little eyepieces, you know, mm -hmm. as well. Like filters can really help quite a bit. I've been using the number 21 orange okay. and I've been using a filter made out of optical glass, um, which costs a little bit more than just like the generic filters that you buy and a contrast filter. And you've actually got one of these, Salmon filters. I, I had salmon last night. Um, this is a salmon colored filter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I know you're a fan of salmon as well. So, I but I did salmon. have salmon last night. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like a Rattan 30 or 32. Okay. Um, also, magenta, I think, is um, how it's listed. Um, yeah, it, it's wonderful too. Like, it's, um, I'm trying to think here how I would place it. Um, it, it I have the, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's not quite like as deep uh, in terms of color as the 21 orange. Yeah. You know, it's lighter. Um, I'm just reading here. It, it, so the, the magenta enhances red and blue features, improves mm -hmm. polar region features, some clouds and surface features. You know, if you read on cloudy nights, um, a lot of the planetary guys, especially the Mars folks, really, you know, they seem to gravitate towards that one a lot. Yeah. I have, I also have the uh, Celestron Mars filter and I like that one quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite yeah. nice. And, and what filters do is, you know, they'll block certain wave, uh, wavelengths of light while allowing others to pass. So the reason we use these filters is because it may expose a certain feature or, or allow us yep. to see just a little more detail on say the darker region or the polar region, or sometimes you'll get a band of clouds passing. So, you know, we'll, we'll try these different filters to um, pull out a little more contrast and specific details. Yeah. And the other thing um, that I noticed, especially when the scene, you know, we, we didn't do any of this the other night because I think we were just really enjoying like being together and, and sort of observing once again under the sky um, with our very, very small. Um, a bubble group or when dip wavelengths of light aren't being impacted by the bad seeing when they're occurring. Yeah. So, sorry, I had just a small hiccup in my internet connection there. Yeah, I was just going to text you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I just there. dropped it for, for a very brief moment, just a breather, just a yeah. breather. Yeah. So, I think what it comes down to though, with Mars sort of, fortunately or unfortunately, the more you look, or perhaps in the case of like Lowell, the more you'll imagine you'll see, but really it is um, a business of going out and observing quite a bit, mm -hmm. I think, to, to really see a lot of this stuff. Otherwise, you know, sit back and enjoy the, the Hubble images uh, or whatever kind of other space telescope or amateur images uh, roll in over, over the coming uh, next couple of months. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, time at the eyepiece is essential. 
Um, something else that can help though is is to research a little bit of the surface features and what is possible to see. Yeah. Because um, that helps you look for things, right? To see if you can see Olympus Mons, for example, um, if it's visible on the night that you're observing. Yeah. And then as well, like being uh, a member of, a, of an astronomy organization, we're members of, of the RASC and then we have sort of some uh, partner organizations like with the uh, ELPO, uh, the uh, Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. And and so Richard Smoody, who's a member of both, he's he's on uh, some of the same lists I am. So I think he's like the director or associate director of the Mars section or something like that. So, um, you know, great person to chat with. There's a lot of other sort of more experienced uh, visual observers. And sometimes they're just using slightly larger equipment. So I was using my 60 and if they're using like six, he was using a six inch telescope and then uh, somebody else is using an eight inch and we we're kind of going back and forth uh, a bit. So the stuff that's just at my, just at my threshold that I'm not really sure I'm seeing, they're getting it a little bit sharper with like a six or an eight inch scope. But yeah, you're right. I mean, even with really small 60 millimeter or three inch telescopes, even um, you're really able to, to see quite a bit. For sure. And it's an easy, it's an easy planet to find as well. Now in the night sky, it's not like Uranus or Neptune. You, you can't miss Mars right now. No, like you walk out, even, even this morning, it's basically, it's not totally cloudy, but there's a really thick layer of cloud preventing you from seeing the majority of stars in the sky. I think maybe I could see like a couple of the other brightest stars. Like I could see the moon and Venus shining through uh, but then Mars is like sort of the third brightest thing up there right now. Just, just phenomenal to see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next couple months. So have you done any reading on Mars? A little bit. Um, it's really hard in the spacesuit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, I've talked a little bit about this book that I recently got. It's new to me, but it's an old book and it's called moon, Mars and Venus, mm. uh, a concise guide in color. Uh, Ham, Hamlin is the author. Um, so it, the majority of this book is maps of the moon, um, okay. drawn by Ruckel, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah. there is a 10 or 15 page section on observing Mars, which is pretty nice. good. It's a little dated, but, um, you know, things, what, what, what is talked about here absolutely applies uh, today. And, yes. um, you know, it's a handy little book. I like it a lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things is, is that as far as like the visual observing, which is what you and I are mostly uh, interested in, in talking about and, and looking at for ourselves, mm -hmm. um, hasn't really changed much in the past 50 or 60 years. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, reading some of the, the older material is, uh, is really enjoyable and, uh, and a lot of fun. Because most of the missions now, like you're looking at rovers that are scouring the planet, I mean, you're able to look at, at a close-up image of a rock core sample that's been drilled on the planet. Well, you're never going to see anything like that through a telescope, like, like not even close, or like the Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter or anything like this. Like they're, they're taking such high-resolution images. You can see like these sand patterns on the surface. You're never going to see anything like that through a backyard telescope. So pretty much everything that, that you're going to see um, was more or less known about uh, since about the, the 1950s uh, or earlier for the most part, you know, there's a, there's a few things, but uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I use, Chris is um, it's Orion's Mars map. 
Okay. I don't know if you've ever looked at it. I haven't. I put a link in our notes there if you want to check it out. But Oh, yeah, there um, it is. It, it's just like a three-page folded, almost like a brochure. Um, it's laminated, so this is meant to be beside you at the eyepiece. And if it gets wet with dew, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, what I love about this thing, you open it up. And it gives you, you know, uh, it's a map of Mars. So you, you get kind of both sides that are largely visible to Earth uh, with all of the major features plotted. Uh, so it plots 150 features. Um, now, what I love about it is it also gives you the size of these features, like the mm -hmm. width. So depending upon your aperture, you know, if you can only resolve something down to, say, 300 kilometers wide, you can kind of scan through the list to see what is visible within, you know, your aperture. That oh, you wow. So that's really cool. That but is it talks cool. About, like, just looking at it here. Yeah. yeah, like it talks about like the clouds and hazes and it, you know, gives you a little bit of an overview as well as how to observe it. Huh. Um, it talks oh, about using different filters um, and it gives you a list of all the ratins, like 8 through 82. And then it tells you like, for example, ratin 12, deep yellow, brightens desert regions, darkens blue and brown features, enhances blue clouds. So yeah. you have a little bit of a reference there for which filters will uh, help bring out different things. Mm -hmm. um, talks about the seasons, the caps, uh, conjunctions, wow. oppositions, and it's like $20. And it's probably, it's a, in my opinion, the best thing you can have for observing Mars. Uh, yeah, I see. Like, it, yeah, it's actually $13 American. The whole kit is 30 bucks. Maybe I, I was looking at this kit before. I just wasn't sure how, how good it was. And uh, maybe uh, I just never never knew you you actually had had purchased it through Orion Telescope and Binocular. Um, if they wish to sponsor the show, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tweet out a picture of the camera yeah. just so everybody has that reference. But I, yeah, highly, yeah. highly recommended. Yeah, wow, cool. Um, well, sort of on that note, I, I have a little bit of a longer reading list here uh, with stuff that I've been uh, really enjoying. Um, so I have one book that I, that I really think is very good. Uh, it's by Patrick Moore. It's called uh, Patrick Moore on Mars by Patrick Moore. And uh, the reason why I like this, it's, it's a super easy read and it's quite enjoyable. He, he talks about like sort of the history of observing Mars and some of his observations and then sort of like later on gets into um, some of the space missions and such, which is much dated now being, uh, you know, uh, a 20 or so year old uh, book. Um, but, you know, like I said, for the most part, about 80 or 90% of it um, is on the history of Mars and his observations and all that is is still relevant today. Um, so that's uh, Patrick Moore on Mars. I think that's probably, I think probably the easiest and most enjoyable read. Um, I have another book that I've read most of this summer. Um, it's a little bit academic. It's by Willem Sheehan and it's called The Planet Mars. It's actually available online as well. I'm not really sure why. I think it must be out of press and maybe he's agreed. I'm, I'm not gonna send out a link to it in case um, there is an agreement on that, but uh, just called The Planet Mars by William Sheehan. And it's, uh, he goes into a lot of the um, sort of history and a bit more of the uh, details on the individual observers. It's a, it's a good read, um, a little bit more detailed, a little bit more academic. Um, and then sort of on the technical side, sort of like the technical observing of Mars um, is Mars and how to observe it by uh, Peter Grago, who, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Um, but this is from uh, 2012. 
So I think that's sort of the, the more recent. And he goes into a lot of detail on what you can see in different apertures and the equipment to use. And it's a very comprehensive book. I really like it. It's not a book you're going to read cover to cover, though. Um, and there's some stuff in there that is extremely technical. I really like Peter Grago's works. He's, he's done a few of these books, but they are comprehensive. I mean, and he goes into the history as well, but it's one of those books. Um, it will, uh, it will grow. You will grow with the book. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there that I, I enjoy reading now that I didn't when I first got the book, uh, seven or eight years ago. Then this other one, this is one I read this year. I'm not sure. This, this just came out in 2016. It's not a book. It's an academic paper um, from the Society for the History of Astronomy. And it's, again, by William Sheehan. Uh, it's called Mars, the History of a Master Illusionist. And it mixes psychology and astronomy. And it, that is a fun read. Hmm. That, is, that is a really, you should, and it's, it's not that long. It's a paper. Um, and you should, I think you should read that one, Shane. I think, I think you would enjoy it. It's yeah, I'm yeah. just checking it out right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's approachable actually, and uh, yeah, it that that's just a paper that's freely available online, so there's there's no cost to it. But I think if somebody was uh, just looking to pick up a general interest book, um, Patrick Moore on Mars by Patrick Moore is very approachable. Um, there was a lot of copies put out. Like I bought mine for two dollars and ninety nine cents. Oh wow! So it's very inexpensive. It's a very easy read. Like I, I've read it every Mars opposition since uh, 2003. Um, because, you know, I can read it over the course of about, you know, basically a chapter a night and however many chapters there is. It takes me a week or 10 days and just reading a chapter a night before bed uh, is really a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check that one out too. Yeah. Very cool. Well, that's sort of our Mars uh, opposition episode for for the Mars opposition coming up on October uh, 12th. But, uh, you know, if people are, they should uh, uh, be able to take their telescopes or, or binoculars that didn't want to watch the retrograde action uh, to observe it uh, immediately and start observing it. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. Anything else to add, Shane? That is all, my friend. Excellent. Well, we shall end it here. How can people stay in touch with us? They can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. You can email us, actualastronomy at gmail.com. And you can leave us feedback on any of the podcast platforms. We definitely appreciate the feedback, any and all. And if we can respond, we will respond. Thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, everybody, for listening.